0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. With 24-7 award-winning customer support, you can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In today's world, honor is typically thought of in terms of integrity. It's doing the right thing when no one else is looking. But traditionally, honor meant having a reputation worthy of the respect of others. And if people think about this traditional type of honor these days, it's usually in a negative way, associated with pistol duels, honor killings, and toxic shame. But my guest today argues that for moral life to be robust and vital, a culture of honor is absolutely necessary. His name is Tamler Summers. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Houston, co host of the podcast, Very Bad Wizards, and the author of the new book, Why Honor Matters. Today on the show, Tamler and I discuss honor, what it is, why it disappeared from our moral ethos and vocabulary, and why we should bring it back. Tamler makes the case that honor culture fosters community and encourages risk-taking for the sake of excellence, while our modern dignity culture atomizes us and encourages us to play it small. He then makes a counterintuitive argument that the contained aggression and violence that honor promotes can have real benefits and shares one way honor is making a comeback in the form of the restorative justice movement. We in our conversation discussing why stories of honor are so appealing to humans and whether it's really possible to revitalize honor in modern Western society. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash matters. Tamler joins me now via clearcast.io. Tamler Summers, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you just published a book. I, and I, also, I was telling you this before the show, when, when I got the book review copy, I was so excited to see it because you know we wrote a, a long, in-depth series about this topic a long time ago. And when I was writing it, I was just, there's nothing on this topic out there. Your book, Why Honor Matters. So let's define honor because I think it's one of those words that gets thrown around a lot but, I don't think a lot of modern folks really know how to define or describe it. or if they if you ask them, like, what is honor, they'll usually give a definition that means like integrity, right? Living according to your own personal values. but that's that's not what honor is. So walk us through what is honor and sort of what are the, you know the founding fathers said when they swore upon their sacred honor or what Achilles talked about when he talked about his honor?
1: Well, I, I think I'm one of those people who has a hard time defining honor. And, you know, in spite of having written a book about it, but part of the problem with it is it is a word that's kind of an umbrella term that applies to so many different things, so many different kinds of, you know, it can be an adjective to honor somebody. It can, you, you call judges your honor, you know, there's honor. It can be a verb, honor thy father and mother, you know, But I I think one of the helpful things, if you look at some of the anthropology and some of the work that's written about it, is this distinction, which you talk about on your blog, actually. And I would point listeners who aren't familiar with that series that you did, because you did it a while back, right? It was a few years ago. Yeah, 2013. Yeah. Yeah, So you talk about this distinction that Frank Stewart introduced between horizontal and vertical honor. And that's, I think, a helpful way of sort of pinning down how what honor is and, and how it's essentially tied to being in a group. So, so let me just talk about that. Horizontal honor is... It, it's... It's. It means, if you have horizontal honor, that you're entitled to a level of respect or esteem just by virtue of belonging to an honor group. And honor groups vary. There's so many different kinds of honor groups. But when you're in an honor group, just belonging to it, just being a member of it, entitles you to a certain degree of respect or esteem. So for example, being a made man in the mafia, you just just for being a made man, you get a bunch of privileges within that structure. The people in the community have to treat you with a kind of respect or dif- or deference. Now I'm taking this from the movie Donnie Brasco, but I guess you get called a friend of ours rather than a friend of mine. And you definitely don't pay for drinks or dinners. And, you know, importantly, and this is this is in the research on the mafia, once you're a made man, other mafiosi can't steal from you. They're not allowed to assault you. They're not allowed to hit on your wives or girlfriends. And that's just because it's not for anything that you've done. It's just because you're a made man in the mafia so that's the kind of the defining feature of horizontal honor is that it is distributed equally to all group members just because they belong to a group it's not tied to a specific action or your actions or your achievements right so when we say your honor to judges we say that just because they're judges not because oh that was a that was a great decision that you handed down or that you wrote that was a great verdict it's just unless they get disbarred or they retire they're just entitled to this form of respect and and uniform military who Some airlines allowed to board a plane early and will often say, thank you for your service. Again, we don't know what they've done to serve our country, but just by virtue of belonging to the military, we think they're entitled to that degree of respect. So that's horizontal honor, the kind of honor you get from just from belonging to a group. Vertical honor is kind of the flip side of that. Vertical honor is the thing that you compete for once you're in the honor group. And vertical honor, unlike horizontal honor, can't be distributed equally among the group members because that's how you move up and down in the hierarchy is based on how much vertical honor you either have or lose within the group. And you have it or lose it, through your actions and through your achievements and sometimes you know these your your status either going up or going down sometimes that's formal like with rank in the military sometimes it's more informal you know being this is an example i use in the book being the comics comic like there's within the stand-up community there are Comics that are known as the, it's just this kind of informal title. You're the comics' comic. You make even the comics laugh, right? And that's kind of an honor, that's an honorable position to hold. Not that you get any money for it, not that you get any kind of official recognition. That's just how you're known and how, and people will treat you uh, in a certain way because for the moment at least, you are the comics' comic. Or like, we both do podcasts, right? And unfortunately for me, your podcast is ranked higher in the iTunes rankings than our podcast. So right now, for the moment, we're coming at you, but right now you have more vertical honor as a podcaster than we do.
0: Well, maybe I don't. Maybe because like it's people outside the group of podcasters who are determining that that vertical, so like maybe it's like it's not vertical honor, right? Am I the podcasters podcaster?
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a good point. In fact, <laughs> are you the podcasters pod? We don't really know have podcasters podcasters. You're right; it's too diffuse a community, really, and it's so spread out. And you know, you, there are these famous podcasts that I've never heard of, even though this is a thing that I do, and I'm sure most people haven't heard of ours. So, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's actually a, a really good point that when things are too anonymous and there's no way of really kind of allocating this form of respect then the honor structure disintegrates and there really isn't one for podcasting no pod no honor amongst podcasters <laughs> no honor right exactly i guess there are ceremonies and stuff right like awards. Yeah.
0: but But, yeah it's sort of self-congratulatory but i guess that's what honor like vertical honor is it's self-congratulatory you're you're honoring what the values that you guys in that horizontal group honor
1: yes exactly and it's not i mean to say that it's self-congratulatory it makes it almost sound a little petty but it certainly doesn't have to be if you're you know if you're the captain of a of a hockey team or something like that that's really you know people really respect that and 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 what you did to earn that title and to, you know it's not something that the person just tried to do so that, it, that that the player so that he could put on his resume or something like that you know it's something that means a lot it's just a part of their identity so just to recap so like honor is about
0: group right that's important that's an important yeah. aspect because uh and we'll talk about why that's important here in a bit honors about group. You really, you're, I mean, in a way you own your honor, but you don't, right? Like it's dependent upon other people as well, recognizing your, your honor. It's about respect. And then you can have honor within a group and be just by being a member of the group, but then you can get more vertical honor by doing certain things. Let's talk about, you, you talk about there's certain rights and privileges that come with being part of an honor group and having that honor. But there's also responsibilities. Yeah. What are some examples? And what happens if you don't live up to those responsibilities?
1: Yeah. So once you're in an honor group, you have a certain set of responsibilities, you know, maybe. So if you're, to go back to the mafia example, if if you're a made man in the mafia, now you have to, you're bound by the omerta vow. You're not allowed to cooperate with the authorities. And if you do, that's one of the ways you can get kicked out of the honor group. You are bound to pay certain amounts of money to people who are higher up than you in the mafia structure. And if you don't do that, you'll lose vertical honor. And if you And 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 at a certain point, you can get booted out of the the group if if you don't live up to your responsibilities. And And I think this is one of the this is one of the sort of misconceptions people kind of think of it of belonging to an honor group as just these unearned privileges, especially when they're talking about horizontal honor. But they're not unearned in the sense that. Often it comes with certain burdens, burdens of hospitality, burdens of taking risks in defense of your group, even being willing to sacrifice your life. I mean, think of the Navy SEALs and the kind if you belong to a unit in the Navy SEALs, you are bound never to leave one of your fellow officers in 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 the in, in, even if they're dead you're not allowed to leave them on the battlefield without bringing them back and that's an obligation that you get because you are bound by the code of that honor group and you need this kind of shared code this shared commitment this shared value system in order both to allocate vertical honor within the group and to know when someone haven't, hasn't lived up to their minimal responsibilities to even have the horizontal honor. And you also need it as a way to motivate people to, to sacrifice in such a way that they're able to live up to their responsibilities and in some case exceed, go above and beyond the, the call of duty.
0: And that's where the the role of shame comes in. That's one of the critiques people often give uh, towards honor cultures that, oh, there's this toxic shame, but, you know, shame can actually be a strong motivator to get you to do, you know, to hold up to your obligations that you have for being part of that group.
1: Yeah. And, you know, shame has, can have its downsides, but I think we're all learning right now what what happens when you have a culture of shamelessness i mean you know one of the f- almost funny things about trump is how little shame he has about just flagrantly lying or misleading the the public right i mean he he will this is this is a guy that is not burdened by that feeling of shame for better And for worse, I mean, in my view, mostly for worse, but or, you know, another example I use in the book, the banking crisis that was caused by a lot of people who afterwards just refused to take any responsibility for what they had done to the entire country. And there was no structure really in place to to shame them into not into, you know, or 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 punish them or lower the amount of respect that they were getting within their own communities and 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 so it has a real downside when there's no there's no set of principles that when you fail to live up to them you will feel shame and you will be shamed by others well let's
0: talk about you know why this sort of you know you can be shameless today you know for you know from a lot of for many centuries honor was sort of the guiding moral paradigm for people living in the west but now it's not anymore why is that what changed
1: well as we were saying before honor needs a group honor as a value system needs a group to function it is essentially social and it cannot exist for individuals in isolation so For the whole motivational and ethical structure to work you need a collection of people that know each other and that are bound by a shared set of principles and values again you need this shared set of values because that's how honor is allocated within the group but you know in the last few hundred years in the modern world and especially in the west These communities, these societies were growing much bigger and crucially, much more anonymous. And so the currency of honor, whether you receive honor or dishonor, that gets devalued because nobody really knows who you are to begin with, right? I mean, I, I was thinking about this just the other day how rare it is that i interact with somebody that knows who i am that has the the slightest clue who i am what i've done the good things that i've done the bad things that i've done i mean in 90% of my day-to-day interactions that doesn't happen uh, you know at least when i'm out when i'm out at work when i'm out shopping when i'm out just you know when i'm not at home and honor needs people Who care about their reputation and their status within a community. But if you don't have that community and nobody knows what your reputation is, well, then the whole motivational engine that drives behavior in honor cultures is stripped away. So that's one side of it is just societies getting bigger and more anonymous. Uh, The other side of it is, is ethical and one of the downsides, it's undeniable that one of the downsides of some honor cultures is that there is a kind of oppressive structure that imposes restrictions, not just on a person's, a person's role and behavior, but on what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. So like in some cultures, girls, girls, are prohibited from getting an education, right? Because that's not deemed a proper role. And to sort of find out who you are and what your values are, you need to to be able to get an education. And People do want, people have a desire to shape their own identity. And they have a resistance to being assigned a certain kind of role in life. And I think The morality of dignity, which is a morality that is centrally focused on protecting individual rights and expanding individual freedom, autonomy, that reflects that sort of aversion to honor culture as kind of telling me who I am, what I can do, what I can't do. And, you know, I mean, it's so complicated, but that in conjunction with free market capitalism, and it it, it all sort of led to honor being downplayed, both as a kind of an ethical set of, uh, an ethical value system, and also as something that can even function to motivate behavior and to shape people's attitudes well let's talk
0: about the ethics of you know contrasting honor and dignity culture so dignity it's all about the the individual the worth of the individual you have value worth because you're a human being you exist so how does dignity culture work motivate individuals to do the right thing or how do they even determine what's the right thing? Like with honor, like each group had its little code. And the way they enforced that was through shame and also giving, you know, vertical honor, you know, to to be excellent at the code. What is what's dignity culture? How does how does dignity culture figure out what's right and wrong? And then how do they either enforce or motivate the those ethical
1: behaviors? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the problems of dignity cultures and it's a big one that because it focuses on individual rights and autonomy and respecting people's autonomy respecting their personhood it's mostly if not exclusively just telling us what not to do don't violate their rights don't infringe their autonomy but it but both at a again at a theoretical and i think even more importantly in a, at a motivational level it doesn't really have anything in place to get people to perform acts of positive virtue. You know, when you say do the right thing, dignity is much more focused on getting people not to do the wrong thing, not on doing the right thing. So um, there's, there's nothing, you know, it, it, something like acts of courage, acts of risk-taking, Dignity just doesn't have much to say about that because to not take risks or to not to not be brave doesn't off, most of the time doesn't violate anybody's rights. It doesn't infringe on anybody's autonomy. Now, where honor cultures and the norms of honor cultures. One of the, one of the guiding sort of principles that seems that most of them have in common is that they attach great positive value to acts of courage that benefit the group. And that, the, and they have a whole set of norms that encourage bravery and strongly discourage being a coward. I mean, if you're a coward in an honor culture, your status goes down. But dignity has nothing like that. And even at the level of the morality of it, there's nothing really wrong with being a coward that the ethics of dignity doesn't really have any attach any negative value to that. And I think that's led to one of the most frustrating things for me about modern life is how risk averse we are as a culture. And we don't have a moral language to try to change that. And I give a bunch of examples of this in the book and like what I call my cranky chapter, the chapter where (laughs) I start about all the things that are wrong when we have rejected honor to such a degree.
0: Right. Like making bike helmets. You have to wear a bike (laughs) helmet now when you ride a bike because you're going to fall off and create crack your skull open
1: i know that's yeah that that's a huge pet peeve of mine i have to say though i i feel like i'm winning that at least here in houston it does seem like the tide is turning against bicycle helmets well yeah and i think i mean it actually i think it
0: doesn't say something like bike helmets actually make you less safe Right, like, because drivers see you're wearing a bike helmet, so they drive closer to you. And then, because you're wearing a bike helmet, you you think you're safe, so you're able, you, you do dumb things. But when you're not wearing a bike helmet, right, you, you have to be more careful, pay more attention. And the drivers treat
1: you like they they, they stay further away. Yeah, I mean, there are some studies. I mean that's the ultimate irony of this, and and of many of these cases, is that the actual risk is so minuscule, or maybe in this case non-existent, that. But but I don't even rely. I, I try not to rely on those kinds of studies because that just plays their game. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> right. I don't. I don't even like. I. It's fine if it adds a little risk to your life. So let's, let's talk some more about honor because you have this whole chapter. One one aspect
0: that's often attributed to honor, or people think go hand in hand, is aggression and violence. You make a kind of an interesting case, you know, sort of the dignity culture say, oh, aggression and violence is bad because that violates the rights of others, so you avoid it. But you make the case that actually, no, aggression and sometimes violence can actually be good and virtuous and bring communities close together. So walk us through that uh, counterintuitive argument.
1: Yeah, I mean... So, under in certain conditions, and I and the condition that I focus on in the book is when the violence is contained, when the threat of es- escalation is contained, then violence can. Well, it, there's a couple of things. It can be a safe way to release pent up aggression that has been building up that kind of resentment and bad feeling. And then it, it's a way, it's a kind of release for that. It can also be a way to prove your courage, right? Prove that they, And prove the fact that you'll stand up for yourself, prove, uh, show, demonstrate the self-respect that you have. It can be, it can show your loyalty, like to your friends. So one of the examples I use is this bar fight culture in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. And you know, that the, there's an honor code that guy, that the, these people, if they get insulted, they get into fights outside the bar and the, the basic core principles are just honor principles. Stand up for yourself, stand up for your friends. And, um and they have in that case, informally, certain sets of constraints and boundaries to keep the violence for, from getting out of hand. They, you know, once the fight is over, once the person can no longer defend themselves, if you still go at the person at that point, it becomes dishonorable. So that's now like, once you win, it's over. It's also dishonorable to fight somebody who you know you can beat, right? This is a thing that saved my ass number of times because I was a talker in a bar when I was younger, but I couldn't, I can't fight, you know, like I, a- anybody who would almost certainly have kicked my ass, but like sometimes, because especially when I was younger and I looked even younger, I off like up till I was 25, I looked like I was still in high school. People would just be, people would just say, you know, all right, because it just, it wouldn't have been honorable. to to fight me. So so they have all these built-in kinds of constraints, fair fight, equal numbers. And it is a way to prove their self-respect and loyalty to their friends and to kind of enforce and clarify certain boundaries. I talk a lot about this book by Elijah Anderson about the inner city neighborhoods in Philadelphia and how fighting there, even among friends, can be ways to kind of prove your worth and also, again, to establish norms and boundaries within a friendship, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. And then, you know, maybe the best example is, or the one I go into the most detail is the NHL in hockey, where fights are... Again, a way of bringing the team together, building solidarity within the team, but also a way to keep people from engaging in, really, because it's such an inherently violent game. So taking cheap shots that could either take out your star scorer for, their, for a series or for the season or for their career, there's this sort of established informal code in place that allows people to stand up for their teammates when someone takes a, te- a cheap shot at them, or to, you know, if, if, if the team is frustrated because they're getting t- destroyed, to allow them to take out some of that frustration in a relatively safe way. And again, there, there's this built-in form of containment. There's the hockey officials, who are these master psychologists kind of trying to figure out exactly when a fight should happen, shouldn't happen, when to stop it, when to let it go. And, you know, at a, at a larger level, the league office, so that if brawls get completely out of control, then they can step in and, and prevent them. Right. So, I mean, it's, I mean without
0: that honor culture, that culture of honor, violence sounds like it could escalate. Like people just go right to, I'm just going to kill you and annihilate you. Because I mean like you know if the individual is the highest thing in you know a dignity culture the worst thing you do to somebody is just kill them right <laughs> like just take away their identity is that is that you think that's what's happening
1: now or am I reading too much into that so it's funny because this is something I'm working on hopefully with in in the New York Times but that was the thing that that they are that they were trying to press me is does low level violence actually prevent lethal violence or greater violence and i and i was thinking about that and trying to think if i could honestly say that low level violence actively prevents more lethal violence and i'm not sure that i can say that well certainly sometimes low level violence does escalate into into lethal violence and so right. there's definitely going to be a lot of cases where so so i think what the 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 claim that i that i will that i feel confident about is that low level violence when constrained by the right kind of honor codes or by something else um uh, can definitely be a safe way of releasing aggression and preventing further harm but sometimes you do need forms of containment in place that don't come from the specific honor culture so, one example that I talk about in the book is gangs in urban America. They used to settle their disagreements with fists. They had a lot of beefs, but the beefs would end in fist fights rather than gun fights. But then all of a sudden, guns came into the picture. And so, a lot of those beefs would escalate into. into gunfights, and you had, uh, you know, skyrocketing murder rates. And the best programs, the best policing programs of a way of containing it, it does come from outside. So it's not part of the honor code. But what it does is, it just takes the guns out of the picture. It doesn't stop them from engaging in their in their activities it just means that when violence occurs guns can't be involved so if you take that out of the picture then some of the 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 good stuff that comes from violence the way of proving respect the way of earning respect even often from your opponent right like if i ever did get into a fight and i would lose it even as a loser, you get respect just because you showed a little heart, right? And so, some of the good stuff can come without where, and when, when the threat of actually dying or getting seriously hurt is taken out of the picture. And you know, this guy David Kennedy, who. Who, who, who instituted this program in Boston and, and has been trying, the group violence intervention, has been trying to institute it all over the country and has had great success when it's allowed to be implemented properly. He tells the story in his book, Don't Shoot, about in Boston where they cut homicides by more than half in one year through this program. The, the marker of success was When one of the cops came in and he was like singing practically, he was so happy. He said, I just saw a fist fight. I haven't seen a fist fight in years. (laughs) That was the sign that the strategy was a success. Well,
0: another point you make about dignity culture when it comes to violence is that dignity cultures don't have a good response to when violence is being done to you or you're oppressed, but honor culture does.
1: Yeah. So honor culture encourages, I mean, the, I would say the core, as I understand it, the core principle in an honor culture, both at the level of the individual and your group is stand up for yourself, stand up for your group, handle your business. And so Dignity cultures don't have that. Now, obviously, if somebody is assaulted or threatened, their rights have been violated. So what a dignity culture does is they find ways to punish you or lock you up or put you away. Whereas honor cultures encourage the people involved to sort out their own conflicts. And they. this isn't just through acts of violence and acts of revenge, they have structures in place to mediate conflicts. Uh, And because, you know, especially if you're talking about within group disagreements, uh, a, a real feud will disrupt the harmony of the group. And even a feud with other groups could lead to, you know, Uh, a long-running, multi-generational blood feud. Everybody has an interest in avoiding that. But they have this strict kind of code of, we don't like when third parties... Um, ha- uh, a deal with our own conflicts. That's something that it's our responsibility to deal with. So they have all these structures in place where people face to face sort out their differences and find ways to resolve their conflicts. And if somebody was wronged, then someone has to, uh, make up for it in some way. And these, Often have the special benefit of bringing communities closer together, just because conflicts are exciting and people ha- and and people have opinions about it, and this is how norms get shaped and and further clarified is through these uh, sessions, these kind of media, this mediation process of conflicts, and that's. That's exactly what we've lost in our culture. I mean, if you look at our legal system and then you look at some, you know, how conflicts get sorted out in in uh smaller honor cultures, it, it couldn't be more different. One is completely bureaucratic, alienating to both the victim and the offender. And it just keeps them, it keeps them entirely sort of separate from each other. And the other actually allows them to learn about each other, to learn what they did and how it feels and what they can do to, to take responsibility and make it up to them.
0: We're going to take a quick break for you, Ward, from our sponsors. All right, public service announcement. Mother's Day is coming up here soon and you got to get a gift from mom. But instead of giving her flowers, because that's cliche, pedestrian, give her something that she'll absolutely love. I swear she's going to love this. Dave. It's Sherry's Berries. Sherry's Berries are giant juicy strawberries dipped in milk, dark and white chocolatey goodness, then topped with rich chocolate chips, chopped nuts and signature swizzles. I'm telling you, the strawberries in these are fantastic. We got some a couple weeks ago and they're gone in a day. They all start at $19.99 plus shipping and handling for my listeners, or you can double the berries for just $10 more. Your berries will arrive in Sherry's Berries signature gift box with a beautiful ribbon, no gift wrap required. So you yeah, don't have to worry about that when you give that gift from mom and you can choose delivery date and it's guaranteed. They We've added some new treats like Mother's Day cake pops, strawberry cheesecake bites, and artisanal chocolate truffles, all with mom in mind. There's only one way to get this amazing deal for mom, this 1999 deal I'm talking about. Here's what you got to do. Go to berries.com, then click on the mic in the upper right-hand corner and enter my code manliness. Again, berries.com, that's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the mic in the upper right-hand corner and enter my code manliness to get strawberries at $19.99 plus shipping and handling. Check it out. Mother's Day, May 13th. So do it soon. Also by Squarespace. Take it for me, someone who's built lots of website. If you don't know how to code, it's a big pain in the rear because you're just gonna end up breaking the site when you're changing things up. Takes a long time, it's frustrating. So you think, okay, I'll hire a designer, but that can get expensive really fast. If you want to get a website, a great looking website, up in minutes, you need to check out Squarespace. Everything's point and click on this thing. You can choose from award-winning templates designed by some of the top designers. And you can start a blog. If you're a photographer, you want to showcase your work, you can use it for that. You can even Start an e-commerce store with Squarespace. And again, point and click. And it works on laptop, desktop, smartphone, whatever. It's going to look fantastic. Plus, they got Squarespace Analytics to help you grow in real time, see how your site's doing. And you never have to install, patch, or upgrade ever. They take care of it for you. And if you ever run into an issue, you can always tap into their 24-7 customer support and they're there to help. So if you want to try this with a free trial, go to squarespace.com manliness. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com manliness for that free trial. And then manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I thought that your, your chapters, you kind of talk about how honor, you know, injecting honor back into our jurisprudence might have a lot of benefits because, you know, the dignity culture, like as you said, like the when you're a, a victim, when the state brings a case against the perpetrator, it's they're not bringing it on behalf of you. Right. right? It's on behalf of the state, the people. But, I mean, why do you think that idea of, you know, a third party... Enforcing the law has contributed. You say you know, it's maybe it's contributed. You know, the United States having one of the largest prisoner populations in the world. How has dignity culture, the jurisprudence that's come out of dignity culture, contributed to that? You think?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the chapter. It's a, like this is chapter six in the book. It's probably the thing that I'm most proud of, most excited to pursue in further research. And, and it's related to a lot of my early work on responsibility and free will. I think that, and, there, and there's so many elements to how rejection of honor and honor values has led to what I think is maybe the greatest moral ill of our society, mass incarceration. And so there's at the practical level there's again this resistance to violence of all kinds like any act of violence is considered a uh, a violation of rights and so it has to be punished and so this is how you have like zero tolerance policies for fighting in schools you you fight you get expelled or you get suspended and that's led to the school to prison pipeline. And then you had all the, you know, violence shoots up starting in the mid 60s, you know, through the 90s. And all of a sudden there is harsher sentences and three strikes and you're out and a ballooning prison population as a result of this attitude towards sentencing for violent crimes. So at the practical level, just when you become so scared of violence and so concerned for the safety of individuals who aren't violating other people's rights, then the only way to handle the, fa- the inevitable violent conflict is by diverting the violence into prisons rather than you know, letting mostly affluent citizens have to take a little risk that they might be a victim to it. And then at a theoretical level, this is where I think it's the biggest fraud that the morality of dignity has kind of perpetuated. So, you know, punishment itself is a violation of someone's rights. You're kidnapping them. You're putting them in in a prison, in some cases, even killing them. And so they have to figure out, like, why that's okay that they do it. And so they come up with this framework, this ideal of blind and impartial justice that punishes people, criminals, according to their culpability, right? According to the severity of their crime and the level of the degree of blameworthiness that they had for committing it. You see this in all these Supreme Court rulings. That is the guiding principle. Criminals, once you're talking about, uh, once you're in not a civil case, but a criminal case, they have to be punished according to their culpability and people of equal culpability have to get the same punishment. And that whole system, that whole uh, framework is just built on both empirically false and incoherent ideas about autonomy and responsibility. And it by definition excludes the victim. The victim just becomes a vessel to determine how severe the wrongdoing was. But their interests, their desires, their needs, all of that is considered completely irrelevant to the criminal's culpability. Because most of the time, criminals don't know their victims. And so they don't know how much harm the victim will experience through their crime or how much you know what the victim wants afterwards all that stuff doesn't play into assaulting them or mugging them or robbing their house or whatever it is and so the victim is now removed for the from the equation and and and, and very often doesn't want to be removed for the equation and then for some reason once you cross that civil, that line from civil case to criminal case, now it becomes the people or the state versus the criminal rather than the victim. But there's no justification for that. It's a totally arbitrary line to draw, and there's no justification for matching punishments to degrees of culpability. The whole thing is is based on an illusion on an, on an at both a, a practical level and, a, and, a, and especially a theoretical level. And the tragedy of it is that it's had massive, practical. Uh, it, it's caused so much suffering, and so much injustice. And you know, the, uh, in in the in that chapter, there's this movement called restorative justice, which I think is one of the most exciting new movements in criminal justice reform. And I and it, it really is the it's not, I don't know how explicitly it embraces this, but it's modeled on the way honor cultures handle conflict. They bring the parties, the people who were, uh, the people who were affected by the crime, the people who were involved in it, it brings them together. And it just says, how can we make this right? How can, so this, somebody was wronged. Let's, Try to come up with a solution, and that solution may involve punishment. It may involve prison time, um, or it may involve some kind of restitution. Um, but it allows them to meet face to face and hash out what happened, the harm that was committed, and how the offender can take responsibility and try to and try to do something to to make it to make it better, to make up for it, to atone for it. And it's it, it's fine. People think of restorative justice as this kind of hippy-dippy, hug-it-out approach to justice. But I think it has, at its core, these really strong honor principles, honor-related virtues of I handle my – I'm looking my – offender in the face and I'm telling them what they did and I'm telling them what I want them to do. And as the offender, you actually have to like really face at an emotional level what it was, what harm it was that you called, you caused. And when you look at these, when you just witness them, these sessions, you really see people from completely different walks of life learning to understand each other and learning to understand their own attitudes and behaviors at such a deep level and and so it's such a win-win and uh and yet the it violates so much of this illusory framework that we've set up especially at the criminal in the criminal at the criminal level at the adult criminal level that there's so many obstacles to implementing it and it's just sad that as I try to show, and I will continue to try to show, the obstacles aren't based on anything real. They're just based on what we this this blind impartial justice ideal that can't be defended uh, at, at um, both either theoretically or practically. So, so yeah, that's a long winded way. You you could get me talking about this for hours because this is the thing like buy stock in restorative justice. It's already spreading through the schools. And that's great. And it's had a really huge positive impact, reducing suspensions. People are starting to use it in juvenile courts. And the, the but the real barrier is once you get to adult criminal courts. But this restorative justice movement, like
0: how do you you know, we talked about honor he sort of borrows from honor in a way, but like how do you develop like that shared group honor code? Like, do people just kind of, you know, step up to the plate? Like they, they, they intuitively have that honor code of like what it means to be a member, a good member of the community. And like when they're confronted with it,
1: they, they own up to it. Well, I mean the, the, the way these things work both in honor cultures and restorative justice is you have to have a skilled kind of mediator, but one that is known to not somebody who's anonymous, not somebody who's completely impartial, but someone who's part of the community that guides the discussion, right? And so, like, if you look at it in schools, for example, there are people—either um, one person, depending on how big it is, or, or a group of people—that that run the sessions. And you know, with school as a small enough community, where you know, these these are the values of our school. This is how you violate them. How can we make this right? But there's no s- single punishment. There, it will always depend on the particularities of that conflict. So it's so flexible, you know, like every conflict is different. And so these kinds of sessions allow the participants in the conflict, the people involved to to get at and to address every particularity of what it was they experienced. And and none of that could be specified in advance. Some of it is even even unknown, But you do have that person, that mediator, who is guiding the discussion and is, you know, in this case, a kind of form of containment where, you know, if it starts to go bad, they'll stop the session. And then they'll go to more, you know, traditional disciplinary approaches. But, you know, also there's the kind of informal, th- there are other people that attend these sessions and they get to see how this is worked out. And so just knowing that other people are actually watching you and judging you to some degree by how you handle yourself, that that has that can have a huge positive effect, and it can be a strong kind of communal feeling because everybody's there to support each other. So yeah, that was another point I loved
0: about that you made in the book was that compared to dignity culture, honor culture actually allows a lot of flexibility in either morality or jurisprudence. And like and by flexibility, I mean that in like in yeah. a positive way; it allow it can adapt to different circumstances.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that honor is based in fact. It's not based on some sort of idealized version of what you want society to be. If you look at those sort of philosophical... Kind of the political theories that have dominated in the 20th century and still dominate today. They're, they're idealized. I mean, this goes all the way back to Locke and Hobbes, right? You're not talking about real people in real situations. You're talking about how people would be if they were rational. You know, if your Rawls behind a veil of ignorance, what would their desires be? What principles would they choose to adopt? And honor just doesn't doesn't do any of that, right? It is about the facts on the ground and it can adapt on our, on our norms, on our values are continually evolving to m- meet the challenges of the whatever environment they're facing. And they don't have some kind of ideal that that is, again, kind of impossible to live up to and also not even necessarily coherent, that stands in the way of the, the real challenges and the very diverse challenges that any community will face. So they're not burdened by this kind of s- philosophical baggage that idealized systems of morality will impose on people so you know there are as you mentioned throughout the book
0: and through our conversation there are downsides to honor if it goes if it runs amok yes right sure violence revenge like you know shaming that's just you know goes beyond what's necessary so how do you bring back honor i think you've kind of talked about with restorative justice movement but how do you bring back honor but contain it so it doesn't. So we can get the benefits without as many of the downsides. Because again, you can't eliminate all the downsides. Because then you wouldn't have honor. Because that—that's what a dignity culture would try to do. Let's make, let's make honor safe.
1: Yeah, but but like so safe that. that it it ends up disintegrating um, because you won't tolerate just a single exception to whatever. Yeah, no. So, I. I but but I I, I want to because I've really just been singing honor's praises in this. I want to acknowledge the downside of it, and I in in the last chapter of the book I separated into two kinds of categories. This is the two problems with honor that are just inherent with in the value system. The first is the threat of escalation. So when you have these conflicts, and because there's this guiding code. To always stand up for yourself and to always respond to challenges. This can lead to escalating feuds, long running cycles of violence. And it's not that it can do it, it has done it. And it's, and there's so many examples of it. You know, Hatfields and McCoys, the Palestinians and the Israelis, gang wars. This is
0: Catholics, Protestants. Yes,
1: exactly. Right. So, so. So, so that's something that needs to be contained. And then at even maybe a deeper level, I think honor doesn't really place any restrictions on the content of the norms for allocating honor. So there's nothing within honor that will prevent really abhorrent values from governing who gets honor and who gets dishonored. And this is how something like honor killings happen, right? So if you have a value system that thinks that any woman who has had extramarital sex deserves to die, and that if she doesn't, the family will be shamed within the community, then there's nothing built in to honor to prevent that from being the guiding norm, right? So I do think for all the shit talking I'm doing about rights-based moralities, that enforcing a kind of minimal set of rights is crucial for allowing honor to work its magic without without having some of the downsides that that honor can bring. So I do think that whatever sort of system in place, there has to be, if the honor group goes outside just respecting basic human rights, then at that point, I think it needs to be controlled or contained, maybe even by an outside party. Hopefully, it could be controlled or contained by structures that are already within the honor group, because honor groups have such a resistance to outside interference but if not then i think it does then you do need some sort of minimal enforcement of basic human rights and some way of trying to encourage honor groups to embrace better norms for allocating honor and shame and and dishonor and so forth and then you know i think an, an easier problem although it's practically can be thorny as hell is containing the threat of escalation but i think that david kennedy program that i talked about where you know they allow the the gangs to to do their business for the most part but whenever gun violence happens then they crack down like crazy on on the whole community right so so all they're saying is no guns just do your do your what do what you're going to do but anytime if if you bring guns into the picture then we're coming down hard we're punishing every marijuana sale we're punishing every any any bit of violence any once you sort of cross that line then your whole community suffers and that encourages like it a I think helps to shape the norms now all of a sudden it's not going to be honorable to gun down some guy you're beefing with and because now you're hurting the whole community by doing that. And it also allows people to, I think, do, it prevents the kind of arms race that can sometimes happen with, in, in honor groups where now you're carrying guns and you're, and you're shooting people just to show, just to prove that you can't be messed with. All of that gets taken care of, but it requires this kind of outside form of containment on what level of violence is going to be tolerated. I mean, there are other really good policing or community organizations that deal with gang violence in a different way and really encourage strong forms of mediation, bringing in former gang leaders. I talk about those too, but I, I, I think as a better example of containment of the threat of escalation that the, you know, the ceasefire project are now called group violence in, in, intervention is a great example of that. Okay. This is great. So, I mean, are you, are you uh, positive, are you bullish on honor making a comeback hmm. or do you think it's going to be an uphill battle? I think it's definitely going to be an uphill battle. I'm bullish on restorative justice. I think I've made that clear. I I buy, you know, put all your money in that. But the challenges that honor faces, especially at you know, in 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 a society like ours, which is so big and now so polarized, and there's so many diverse ways that we get our our news and just our you know like we're, we're told from so many different sources what to think there seems like there's less and less common ground in terms of the values to accept than there ever was now i don't know maybe that's not true maybe in the 60s and 70s there was just as little you know and i wasn't around then but but yeah so i mean i i think just the Hugeness of american society and and modern society in general, and the anonymity makes it ch- makes it a a struggle or a challenge at 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 least a kind of national level but I think you know uh, when when you narrow the community, then I think the honor sort of naturally emerges when you Narrow the focus, what kind of groups are we talking about? Are we talking about sports teams? Are we talking about a, a university or a college? are you talking about a school? Then some of these honor values I think can make a comeback and we don 't even have to do that much because you know honor once you 're in a this kind of small group where you do have shared values, I think these honor related attitudes tend to emerge without doing much. I mean, you see this in sports all the time. And sometimes it's the coach trying to instill this set of honor values, but often it's just these things organically emerging as a way of adapting to the specific context or the specific environment that people are in. So at that level, I am more bullish about honor making a comeback it's 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 almost like it's it's not even necessarily a comeback because it's kind of already there in a lot of these smaller communities.
0: Right, but I, I think you do see dignity culture trying to even get a toe in on those little smaller communities. That's right. Sort of these out, outside forces saying, "Here are these rules, these regulations. You don't do this, don't do that," and then, yes, um, you. It, it's always, a, it's always a battle between
1: right, the And you see this with sports, you know, like you have the classic dignity culture. There's this guy, Ryan Brown, who's <laughs> this one of the guys who wrote Against Honor. Do you know this guy? Because he's also from Oklahoma. No, I, I don't. So he wrote a book. He's a psychologist, I think, at University of Oklahoma, who wrote a book, very critical of honor. And... He tells this story of going to a doctor in Alabama and the way the Alabama doctor was talking about the football team, the university, and how much he identified with that, and how completely irrational it was for this doctor in Alabama to identify with the college football team. and how we have to shed ourselves of these kinds of attitudes where we care so much about a team that we don't play for and we're not involved in. It's just, it's so, it's so, so you have this constant kind of in threat or encroachment and often it's in the language of it's so irrational. It's so irrational to care more about, you know, the members of your community or your group than the whole human race, right? Dignity is just like you You have one community and it's the human race, the other rational agents, persons. And anytime you start conforming your behavior to a smaller community or smaller group and maybe favoring their interests over others, you're considered irrational or immoral or identifying with something that doesn't make sense to identify with. And so... But I don't know. It kind of seems like these things ring hollow. Yeah, I, I think it does. You say we when you're talking about the Red Sox, but you're not on the Red Sox. Like that doesn't make any sense. It's, and it's and it's it's that. It's it's like well, but nobody has ever been convinced by that kind of reasoning. I, if if you understand it, then you are not going to be talked out of it by somebody who is, yeah, is, is kind of in this kind of rational robotic way, trying to explain to you as if you didn't know why <laughs> that, that, that you're not a member of the team, you know, as if this doctor didn't know that he's not a member of the team. It's just so, it's so ridiculous that, you know, but yeah, so I, I think those things do ring hollow, and I think you're right. Yeah. But then you know, even at the level of within our own culture, I think all of us have some honor, even whether it's dormant or not. We have some sort of honor-related uh, virtues and attitudes that are just waiting for the right environment to grow and to flourish and to be born or reborn. Right. I think you're right, and that's why
0: you know. Movies that stir you, like Lord of the Rings, or you know, Braveheart, like like it, yeah, fe- like or even like The Godfather. Use the example of The Godfather, right? Uh, it's like you're like, yeah, that's kind of bad what he's doing, but I get that, and I I kind of like that.
1: Um, you respect that they're living according to their code, and they're willing to take risks, and they're willing to risk their life for the family, for their for their community. And although you don't necessarily embrace. The, codes, uh, or, or exactly what it is that they're fighting for just the loyalty that they're showing and the courage is, yeah, we feel really nostalgic for it. Cause it's exactly the thing that's missing in our own lives is the ability to, to take risks and show loyalty to a community, demonstrate that kind of loyalty. I mean, you, you have, if you're in the military, or at a much less kind of serious level. If you are if you play sports, that's one way of doing it, but most people aren't either of those things. They're not in the military, they're not on a team, they're just doing, you know, they're just living their lives and they don't have that kind of community or shared value structure. To to, but but we still you you see it just like with these movies the fact that the Odyssey and the Iliad that we still read them and the and we still love them and the you know all the Greek tragedies Shakespeare plays I mean these are all just it's like our honor receptors get triggered by these things. And then we go back to our regular lives, not in that context anymore, and it and, you know it gets tamped down. So that's the bridge that just needs to happen. Yeah.
0: Well, Tamler, this has been a great
1: conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, so I've just developed a new webpage, TandlerSummers.com, and you can see some of my publications, some of the books that I've written, and... Uh, and, it, and it's being updated. But yeah, that, that's a good place to go. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Tamler. You can listen to my podcast so we can maybe start approaching the art of manliness in the iTunes rankings. <laughs> Get some of the little vertical honor that might come with that. Um, it's not right? vertical honor. I thought we decided <laughs> it wasn't yeah it's not I, guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know do you ever
0: look at the rankings you have i do yeah i do but like i don't even know how they
1: they determine them no really. it's like the the yeah. they, especially the yeah the rankings within the yeah. categories Like, i guess the rankings of the episodes are more determined by downloads yeah. but the ranking i look at that yeah. so do so but uh yeah so very bad wizards this is a podcast i do with david pizarro who's a cornell psychologist and it's a very informal often dirty bad language inappropriate jokes on issues in moral psychology that's awesome so you can check check out that and yeah i guess that's it cool well tamler thank you for your time it's been a pleasure yeah thank you Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.
0: My guest today was Tamler Summers. He's the author of the book, Why Honors Matters. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstore everywhere. You can also find more information about his work at tamlersummers.com. Also check out his podcast, Very Bad Wizards. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Matters. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I've something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.